environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Golm. And thank you all for joining us for another episode. Today, we have the pleasure of discussing the manuscript Film, Environment, Comedy, Eco-Comedies on the Big Screen. And we have the two authors with us today. We can't wait to talk to them. We have Robin L. Murray. Robin had a childhood on the move in a journey that began in Huntington, West Virginia towns and touched on Galesburg and Illinois, Pittsburgh, PA, and Michigan and Ohio communities, including the sites of her undergrad and grad institutions, Oakland, U Toledo, and the Ohio State U. No matter where she lived, she loved nature and transformed hiking, biking, and winter sports into her academic and scholarly focus on American regional women writers and eco-cinema. As Professor Emeritus of English and Film Studies at Eastern Illinois University, she continues to teach film and theory classes. She and her co-writer, Joe Human, have published seven books looking at popular cinema, westerns, animated films, horror, documentaries, city cinema, and comedies through various lenses of eco-cinema studies. She also applies her environmentalism in her daily life, leading a green team and implementing sustainable food systems in her Charleston, Illinois community. We also have Joseph K. Human with us today. And Joe was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He did his undergraduate work at Knox College and his graduate work at the University of Iowa. He has been involved with film societies from high school through college and university. Along with seven books co-authored with Robin, he has published essays on eco-cinecriticism in journals like Film Quarterly, Jump Cut, Isle, the Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment Journal, CEA, Studies in Documentary Film, Quarterly Review of Film and Video, as well as numerous anthologies. We are so thrilled to have both of you with us today. Yeah. Hi, we, we expect a very funny episode if we're going to be talking about comedy, so pressure, <laughs> pressure's on. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'm, I am, I am not particular. I'm not particularly funny. I think Brandon, you're probably funnier than me. We'll see how it goes. But I will start with a folk tale that maybe will help us get in the mood. So today, in light of the focus on comedy, I want to tell you all about a Japanese folk being called the Haradashi. So imagine you've had a really hard day, things didn't go well at work, maybe you've had some social troubles, and in the evening, you're sitting alone at home, having a cup of sake, feeling down, when suddenly you hear a knock on your door. In comes an odd-looking black-haired lady. Before you can even react to this stranger in the home, the lady undoes her robe and exposes her stomach, on which there is a giant, jolly, comical face laughing uproariously at you. The face is so silly and the laughter is so contagious that you can't help but start laughing yourself, feeling your worries being lifted from your shoulders. This cheerful being is called, as I said, the Haradashi. It's a creature that spends its time purposely bringing laughter to lonely people. Um, it's, its goal in life, you could say, is alleviating negativity wherever it goes. And so I thought perhaps that would be a fitting mascot for today's episode. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you know, you never know. There's always a folk being to tie into pretty much everything. <laughs> You'd be we surprised. Like I wanted to come to my door. <laughs> yeah, I know. We could all use that. So hopefully, I know you know your focus on 
eco comedy can help us bring some of that lightness um, today. So before we dive into specifics and, you know, talk about exactly what's in the manuscript, I would love if one of you could introduce kind of what the book is generally, just a quick explanation for our readers if they haven't had a chance to read it yet. Yeah, our book is, is focused in on eco-comedies because we uh, wanted to highlight uh, a particular approach to film and eco-cinema that brought the audience in. We found that uh, our work has always kind of embraced this idea of the eco-comedy, even when we're dealing with uh, very serious stuff like eco-disasters. Our film and everyday eco-disaster book actually did include eco-comedies. And we we found that uh, this this need to highlight eco-comedies kind of sprung from a conference presentation we were doing where, you know, folks were talking about climate change from uh, an eco-comic perspective in media, but uh, they, the audience members were noting that most of the films and also most of the scholarship took a more serious approach to climate change, and they didn't find that was something that was actually effective for them. It was it's actually causing paralysis rather than activism. Mm. So, you know, the the goal for us then was to kind of try to find a way to address that, highlighting how there's so many comic films really that are addressing environmental issues of various kinds. And and our book takes a, a more evolutionary approach to the eco-comedy, kind of beginning with the earlier eco-comedies, not only uh, in relation to time periods, but also in terms of, you know, their grounding in you know the pastoral mm-hmm. which of course is one of the earliest uh, eco-comic uh, for us uh, approaches and then moving towards what we see is maybe the the more the earliest of the uh, eco eco-critical approaches that took a comic approach which then is, is looking through the joseph meeker lens of mm. the, the eco hero and the 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 comic evolutionary narratives uh, and that that kind of sprung from the 1970s and then from there of course we're, we're trying to build in um, more recent approaches but in, in relation to popular films of you know looking through Octinian lenses as well as lenses of nostalgia mm-hmm. but all the, along the way also um, trying to highlight how our our own view of comedy has evolved and our own view of uh, the environment and environmental issues has involved evolved along with that. So our, our book really is trying to strategically highlight not only the evolution of the eco-comedy, but also the evolution of eco-comic approaches to it. Awesome. You want to add to that? Uh, not at this moment. It's pretty <laughs> clearer that, you know, uh, that that's what we were trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would only add that, as we suggest in that book and most of our other works, that um, this is a beginning and we don't argue that we're being definitive, that we're hoping that mm, yeah. people who read our work um, use it as a jumping off point, whether they they agree with us or not. It's to just start a conversation to get more people involved in mm-hmm. the variety of issues that we've been discussing in a number of books, including this one. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I love, I, I mean, as you kind of pointed out the, 
at least for me personally, this this feels like a new direction because I, I think uh, you know so often we get we when I think of eco cinema, most people kind of default to like the disaster film or uh, the more horrific and, and serious thing. So I, I love this idea of, of eco comedy and and the um, you know again it's it's been kind of a running theme on you know I think in recent environmental humanities of, of looking for more uplifting ways because it mm-hmm. it gets people. Um, reinvigorated rather than just being a depressive, oppressive kind of uh, feeling hovering over us. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we spent a lot of time in animation mm-hmm. um, in, a, in an essay that we published in Isle in 2007, which is called Environmental Comedies from the 30s through the 50s. I mean, we looked at 500 shorts and um, Wow. And then commented on them uh, in relationship to which ones we thought were most relevant to a discussion of environmental themes that were running mm-hmm. throughout that particular period. And for us, we got a lot of you know of results from that. But whether or not an audience wants to go back, find those films, and look at them, well, that's you know that's something that we encourage. But we don't know whether or not you know people are going to do that. But it was there. We found it very. Interesting that along with all these laughs and also, you know, a lot of this was aesthetically pleasing. Um, there was content that we could um, pull out of those uh, works without any difficulty whatsoever. So, yeah, you also kind of bring up how the scholarship is moving in that direction, and and we really kind of uh, see our work as a conversation with. Nicole Seymour's Bad Environmentalism. Mm. And she's highlighting different genres and modes, but she does have a couple of chapters, one chapter on a couple of films that uh, take that more comic approach to eco-cinema. And so we really do see our our work as in conversation already with scholars that are taking that different direction. There's a lot more going on, especially with the eco-critical approaches to climate fiction and climate mm-hmm. fiction film, especially the climate fiction narratives, you know, the novels and short stories. But uh, I think you're right. There is this move towards uh, a different approach that might be more effective to get audience awareness because, you know, the studies of audience awareness of climate change especially um, suggest that the the films may not be working, and of course, the scholarship may not be working either. Um, if we want to actually move towards activism, which is mm-hmm. you know something we want to do, we don't just want to you know provide readings of these films. We want to you know make people more aware of the issues that mm-hmm. they're that the films are actually interrogating, and and maybe even put some feet on the ground to try to change things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I guess, um, you know, kind of building off of that a little bit, um, I, I would, you know, most of us, I think have a kind of a basic understanding of what comedy is. Um, and, and we can kind of, you know, recall movies or TV shows or whatever. Um, but um, I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a quick definition of when you're looking specifically at comedy, what are you, what are you defining it as? And then also kind of building off of that, um, what makes something an eco comedy versus just, you know, a, a straight comedy? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're really going all the way back to Aristotle and maybe even 
earlier, who knows, um, highlighting the, this idea of comedy as a mode. And for us, you know, modes um, highlight purpose rather than just like the conventions that a genre might. And so they, they certainly have particular Pur- hum- humorous purposes they want to make people laugh mm-hmm. but but they sometimes depending on the genre of the comedy um, may like with satire and even parody uh, seek really to make change bring awareness um, etc and so where we think of comedy and uh, the comic as a mode that has a purpose and uh, different genres of comedy then have particular purposes behind them too. Um, now for us, we kind of draw on this idea that, you know, tragedy is more serious and deals with more virtuous people <laughs> where that, whereas comedy kind of highlights less virtuous people and focuses it on human foibles and weaknesses. Um, and that kind of builds into this idea of the eco hero that we've defined and the comic eco hero versus the tragic coming out of Meeker. Um, so, so unlike the tragic mode, the comic mode sets out to restore balance, has these bumbling heroes. Um, and, um, it kind of highlights, uh, a different approach to the hero's journey that builds in, uh, the, not only the evolution of the hero, but also the evolution of the natural world. So when you're dealing with this idea of the eco-comedy, you're going to take a more comic approach that builds community and highlights heroes who act communally um, and then don't like uh, pioneer species in the environment that seek to destroy they want to build balance and equilibrium, but with help from the community, as we see in nature, and also uh, sometimes as bumbling heroes that maybe are very unlikely. Uh, you wouldn't expect them to be heroic at all. Mm-hmm. But with the help of the community, they can build towards something that's closer to what this, you know, what we want to see and, and what nature provides as a uh, maybe a model for what society should be like as well. So an eco comedy then takes kind of a comic approach to this idea of evolution in the environment um, through the various lenses of comedy of different genres of comedy, but keeping in mind this idea of community and, you know, that the bumbling hero. Hmm. What else do you think? You know, the first thing off the top of my head is what just happened in California. 30 million people decided to power down so that there wouldn't be any rolling mm-hmm. blackouts. I mean, it's if you live outside of California, you get these lenses of what California is. Most of them are incredibly stupid and and <laughs> co- com- completely un- completely un- uneducated. And 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 so people were laughing at California's power problems. Um, and yet when the bumbling hero, the governor of California pleads <laughs> with, with his, um, citizens to do something to avoid this kind of, it is an environmental disaster. They responded. 
Now, I have no idea how they responded individually or collectively. But it worked. But it yeah. worked. It succeeded. <laughs> so from 2,000 miles away, we're going, that's what we're talking about. That kind of collective action. Yeah, I can. Um, I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. I, I, I live in Los Angeles. I got that text um, <laughs> and immediately turned off my air conditioning and everything on my house. And... I assume that's what other people must have done mm -hmm. as well. well and then all the way up and down the coast. Yeah, so that's what it takes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it, you know, I, I saw that article as well. It's very interesting. The mm -hmm. sort of like getting, I think people will probably talk about it in terms of social media as well. Right. I, we got a text sure. and that's right. what gets people to respond. Right. But yeah, immediately I was like, well, it must be very serious if I'm getting a text from the government yeah. right now. Yeah. And yeah. Immediately, I was like, "Well, I guess I'll turn off everything." I'm yeah, not and you didn't have to. Risk. You didn't have to talk to your neighbors, to your no. friends, even though you might have after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, people responded immediately because not only because of self interest, but because of communal interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that we've been writing about using Joseph Meeker and others. Mm -hmm. That it's the community, it's the biotic community that. Mm -hmm really is important for human beings to look at and to respond to. Uh, mm -hmm. And without it, you know, there's going to be even more trouble than we're facing right now. So that was a great example of right. people responding to an instantaneous need, doing like, for example, what you did and what a lot of other people did. And, and that's across the age spectrum. Yeah. Um, you could see yeah. maybe younger kids powering down their video games or uh, powering down their uh, their their phones, et cetera, et cetera. But every little bit helps. Mm -hmm. And and at at that moment, California did not face the kind of blackouts that might have been disastrous. Yeah, I hope they do a study of that because it shows you know how interdependent we are. I mean, our we kind of think of ourselves as in silos and individual mm -hmm. and we, there's only so much we can do. So we might as well just wring our hands and stay <laughs> silent. But I mean, that showcases, you know, how little things that people do interdependently really can make a change. Yeah. And I think you, you do bring up in the book, the importance of the sort of communal and the way in which comedy accesses that. And I, I want to continue on this sort of topic of, heroes and disasters and also our community that's academic that's talking about this um, because as has been pointed out as we've been talking there's a lot of questions about what's the productive way to access people I guess you could say it. disaster film versus comedy film very broadly for example and I'm interested if you've run across anybody being resistant to the idea of eco comedy. You you have the quote in your book that what's so funny about environmental disaster right which I think is very apt to think about is like, well, are we really laughing at it or are we just finding a different mode mm -hmm. to interact with it? And I, I was curious if you've had people be skeptical because I know people are skeptical, for example, about like eco disaster studies as mm -hmm. being too dire. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the readers of the book uh, was skeptical of our mm -hmm. approach and I, we thought it was productive in uh, what he, she had to say. I, mm -hmm. I don't really know who the person was. And um, that kind of skepticism sometimes aligns itself with the with the materials that we're looking at. So, mm -hmm. for example, in Monstrous Nature, we're looking at trauma movies. Mm -hmm. And um, trauma mm -hmm. movies are purposely cheap and 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're both disaster and comedy with communal responses or, for example, The Dead Can't Dance, which mm-hmm. is, we're talking about in the contemporary text um, that we're going over right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's a raw film, but it has it has um, a powerful message for us. But mm-hmm. other people might look at the film and, and, and respond to it as being unesthetically pleasing mm-hmm. um, and that means it can't get its message across and our response is the exact uh, opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, We thought it was very effective because the filmmaker, you know, understood the limitations of, of the equipment that he had Mm -hmm. and the locations that he was in and he made the best of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very, it was very um, American Indian centric. And so there's a reason for what he's doing in the way that he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we have no, um, problem thinking that people are going to respond, um, not always positively to things that we consider to be, um, of interest. Mm-hmm. We did find too, that, uh, there was an overview in aisle of, you know, eco cinema studies just, you know, relatively recently, and it didn't include anything about animation. And even though there were, you know, environmental approaches to the animated film and animated shorts. So I don't think, you know, critics count animation and animation studies as real cinema sometimes. The the good news is that I think things are beginning to change. I mean, there's scholars are are highlighting camp more. I mean, I I just love what, uh, of course, uh, Nicole Seymour did, but, but also, um, all the stuff that's going on with climate change that uh, Christy Tidwell and Bridget uh, Barclay's mm-hmm. edited volume mm-hmm. has some really cool stuff about camp and, and they deal with uh, animation too. So, yeah. I mean, there's, I think change is on the way. Yeah. That, yeah. You're referring to gender and environment in mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. fiction. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It, it's one of those things that I think can also tie some of the non-Western contexts to the Western context, because with Japanese eco studies, for example, the animated films of Studio Ghibli are a major canon, Yeah, but they are animated and children's movies, so it can be difficult. Yeah, Yeah. you know, I think a lot of it has to do with that, uh, with the concept of who the audience is, and Mm -hmm. oh, this is for kids, and our point is, yeah, this is for kids. Well, sometimes you know, these are the people who are looking <laughs> yeah. at the future. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's for kids. Sometimes it's for multiple audiences. So, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And they and they can also re- they can also cycle. Many of the shorts that we saw from the '30s to the '50s was were originally made for adults. Mm-hmm. Then were used mm-hmm. for television uh, broadcast, and and then came back to be viewed again by adults. So, I mean, I grew up on those uh, yeah, films. Yeah. I mean, it, it really set my attitude about the world in a lot of ways, which might be somewhat destructive, but uh, <laughs> that's just the point. Um, and we're, we, we, we try to remain sensitive to that, but like Robin was saying that, you know, the exclusion, for example, of the two essays that I'll published of ours on animation were not included in the eco cinema right. we're, we're scratching our heads going mm-hmm. it's cinema it's eco cinema there must be a reason why it wasn't included and it was mm-hmm. probably because it was about bambi and bugs bunny and daffy duck and you can't take those things seriously 
when yeah. you're worried about environmental issues. Because mm, people mm-hmm. underestimate both the audiences for those films and the films themselves. I oh, and the impact, too, the Bambi yeah, the, impact. Oh, yeah. Understand. Yeah, there's so much of an impact continuing on the the, Bam, the Bambi effect. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was absolutely traumatized by all of the movies about animals mm-hmm. from Disney as a child. There is home video. Purposely movies. traumatized. Me oh, too. I was... There are you know, home videos of me crying over Dumbo and the fact that mm-hmm. Dumbo and his mom oh, are separated. Yeah. They're yeah. like it was <laughs> extreme, well, apparently you, very traumatizing. When you when you start from um, Snow White through most of mm-hmm. Walt Disney's control over the feature length films, almost every film has a character that gets orphaned mm-hmm. and usually under traumatic situations. I mean, Dumbo gets back to his mom. Right. Bambi doesn't. Right. right. She's, <laughs> yeah. she's totally out. That ain't happening. Um, and in many of, many of those films, that kind of childhood trauma, you know, is carried along with you to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of uh, moved us into our, our, our project now because we're working with teen films mm. and because I, I think so many folks really underestimate um, what, mm you know, the teen film is and, you know, the themes that it actually embraces and criticizes, et cetera. And, and the same thing happens with animation. People don't mm-hmm. realize, especially with the Ghibli stuff, mm-hmm. what's how complex and complicated and, you know, serious those films really are. Yeah. At the same time, they're visually Oh, they're excited. Amazing. Yes. So you, <laughs> yeah, can, we- you can watch them at five and then watch yeah. them again at 10 and go, Oh, look at all the stuff I miss. I was mm-hmm. overseeing an anime club at school for a while. And so, yeah, they mm-hmm. have this ongoing anime club that's been there for generations now. So. Yeah. <laughs> just like the films. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to take a, just like a, I guess a brief step back because um, you mentioned so like trauma films you mentioned dead can't dance so I, I'm just curious what are some of the other like specific films that you're looking at and are are there any that kind of stand out to you um, either as like you know personal favorites or ones that you recommend people kind of starting with as they're dipping their toes into this idea of eco comedy well I mean we, we talked a little bit before about community and um if you look at a film like the man in the white suit you can see how a community gets together to try to destroy the hero um the hero in this case is a scientist who intends to invent um a cloth that is invulnerable in other words it's um, like the teflon tablecloth you can buy now where everything runs off of it and for a while People were admiring what he was doing till they realized if he succeeds in creating this product, it's going to put both the industrialists and the workers mm-hmm. out, period. And towards the end of the film, they, they, they're surrounding him and it looks like they're ready to kill him um, until his fabric starts to degrade in their hands and they just start laughing at him. And everybody's happy except for our hero who leaves still determined that he's going to be able to create this product. But at at least this moment, he hasn't literally been torn to pieces. The only thing that has been destroyed is his suit, his white suit. So that reverses the idea that, you know, you you see in trauma films and other films where the community comes together for a positive effect to, Mm. you know, protect themselves um, and to change uh, society. Um, So that, I mentioned that film before Robin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it 
if you're wanting to think about films that audiences will enjoy, I think starting um, with, depending on the audience, uh, screwball comedies, uh, because no folks might not expect them to actually highlight environmental messages. So watching the films and then maybe looking at the history of the screwball, so you kind of get a feeling for their context, their cultural and historical context, and then looking at, you know, maybe even that history of the green world. So you could go way back in time just to kind of get a feel for where this idea of an environmental message in a film is that's supposed to be really funny because they are, they're very funny, um, <laughs> uh, might come from. And, you know, Shakespeare was so good at obviously highlighting, you know, the, the freeing green world that maybe becomes, you know, that Bactinian carnival and in, in other film and literature. Um, but at the same time, uh, makes us laugh and think. Okay, so what are the consequences of that green world when we're looking at it through the lenses of colonialism? It kind of changes. Now, whether it's an economic or actual colonialism, it's bad. So, so begin there, but then highlight the diversity of environmental film. I mean, there, there are eco-comedies, not only from uh, intersectional groups throughout our country, but also around the world. And of course, we're not only highlighting so many, we tried to be as diverse as possible. So, you know, one of my favorites is from Greece. Um, so it's, it's highlighting, it's Attenberg, it's called, it's, it's highlighting uh, the deterioration of the natural world. So you have a, a different sense of the green world there. Um, and it's, kind of has elements of screwball as, as have you seen Attenberg? Because I would really no, recommend it. It's awesome. It's, it's funny. It's poignant. It's, uh, you know, looking at, you know, the environment through you know, an, an international lens that maybe is very different from our own. Um, it, it brings up this history of, of Greece that maybe is missing from our cultural context, mm -hmm. um, you know, highlighting how, you know, they've, they built industrial complexes on the top of, you know, sheep herders. And it's just mm -hmm. an amazing history, but also just a really funny film with the, all this screwball. And then they, they bring in um, Attenborough documentaries that, which they actually mimic in different scenes to show that, you know, nature mm. is this thing off to the side in on the documentary screen. <laughs> That's our green world. It's no longer where we live. It doesn't exist in the film. <laughs> there is no green world in Attenborough. <laughs> so I would definitely recommend that. But And, and then, you know, a diverse film here in, in the U.S. If you haven't seen Sorry to Bother Me, uh, please oh do. Oh, yeah. Sorry I, to bother you. Sorry to bother you. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's, yeah, that's probably my favorite of the ones that you discuss in the I love that film. I taught it last year. Oh, God. And it was <laughs> so fun to teach it because it is like, I think it does a really good job of combining very funny things mm -hmm. with very terrifying things, very serious things. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it too much because I feel like it's one of those <laughs> films that if you talk too yes. much about it, it, it's not as good to watch it if you know what's going to happen. How did the um, students respond? They, it was, 
they liked it, which was mm-hmm. good. Um, mm-hmm. They And it was one of the ones they had an option to write their final paper on. So I actually got a lot of very good um, takes on it. Unfortunately, it wasn't an environmentally focused class. Mm-hmm. So although we weren't looking at it was an ethnicity and in, in film in America oh, yeah. class. Um, but a lot of them did write about gentrification because one of our sure. units was on San Francisco. So it, they, Perfect. without knowing yeah. about it, mm-hmm. or they, without knowing it was really eco, they were bringing in that conversation about housing and land and rights to housing and all of those things. Blind spotting is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Another Oakland movie. I, yeah. We were just on two, two movies made about Oakland and gentrification mm-hmm. and the, and the problems of housing. And we've written um, since our first book, uh, looking at dark days about the issue of mm-hmm. ecology, meaning home. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're constantly going back to that, whether we're dealing with dramatic or comedic uh, problems and this, and the issue of home then is always popping up. And that's why both uh, uh, Sorry to Bother You and Blind Spotting were so interesting to us. And also Vampires versus the Bronx, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is easily seen on Netflix, which is, again is overtly um, about gentrification and of course, connecting uh, these these new gentrifiers as vampires, um, mm-hmm. which of course is a, you know a kind of horror concept that vampires really can be works, utilized right? in so many yeah. different yeah. ways. <laughs> They're um, sucking out the yeah. and um, <laughs> and and threatening the lives of all of all of the people who live within these communities, and and they have to there has to be a communal response, and it's mostly by teens mm-hmm. who respond to the to the problem. Um, but we're always interested in knowing how these films play out with contemporary audiences, because even yeah. if they're new, the idea of any kind of monolithic outside of Marvel or DC mm-hmm. um, yeah. films that reach tens of millions of people, we're talking about much smaller audiences. So yeah. a lot of the films that we discuss, um, it could be Love Serenade from Australia or Woman at War from Iceland. They're mm-hmm. terrific films, but we can't assume that, anybody who's listening to this broadcast has seen those films yet. But then yeah. we do, we do think they've seen the cars films. So, so the cars yes. franchise is probably those are the most popular films we explored. It's I think. one of the reasons we included it. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we wanted to make sure that um, at least uh, one set of films that especially have been Disneyfied mm-hmm. so that, the majority of the income produced by the films is not the films themselves, but the films become advertising for products. And then, mm-hmm. of course, advertising for the Cars franchise that ends up in Disneyland, Disney World, all over all over the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that these things are intertwined and, of course, they're they're punched up for kids. And we're, yeah, yeah. we're kind of bookending the, you know, with the screwball highlighting the Hollywood studio system versus cars, which is showing how Hollywood has changed because it's Disney-fied. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. something like Troma, which is like very overtly resisting the idea of like, we we're, we don't want to be in the system. And yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're made cheap. They're made in New York and New Jersey. They're made with, you know, um, small cast, lots of times, uh, non-professional actors, uh, and they're very resistant to the idea that they have to have this sense of polished professionalism in order to get their ideas across. Yeah, yeah. overt so I, and deliberate. Yeah, <laughs> I am curious. I know they're making uh, 
they're doing like a remake of the toxic avenger yeah i'm very curious because that's coming out of the studio system so i'm i am curious what that's gonna look like i fear what, you know, uh, yeah, I, think, I, yeah. Like i think it'll be a way too polished is what i yeah, think yeah. <laughs> we but love every, the toxic avenger everybody's <laughs> looking for ideas so i guess they're going to do the classic nukem high again but i know that's mm. been redone by trauma as well or, yeah you know, one two and three we start that's where we sort of began our eco comedy approaches with we were looking at eight-legged freaks but you know we had to mm. look at trauma to get there <laughs> Let's tie it back to the beginning again. The what do we want the audiences to experience or take away from? As you said, you want to think about action. And so I want to kind of combine the ideas of one of the quotes you say, which is the power of laughter to help save the world, and combine that with your take on daily life environmental existence and the way that comedy speaks to that. The, you know, the the bumbling hero, the all of us, the each individual, the daily life hero how maybe we're seeing eco comedy speak to that sort of environmental existence as opposed to the sort of dramatic disaster then you need a real hero with a gun or science or something <laughs> to stop the disaster <laughs> how eco comedy and laughter speaks more to a daily environmental experience and what that can bring us yeah we we think smaller because I'm beginning with this idea of the everyday eco disaster mm -hmm. that because even though it's not blatant, um, we tried to also highlight how these eco comic films uh, address our basic needs. So, I mean, they're, they're doing it in comic ways, but I mean, even the cannibal cannibal films are highlighting food so mm -hmm. we <laughs> so we have this sense you know with climate change is highlighting you know how we all have to breathe the air so this mm -hmm. we've got that sense of oxygen um that we have housing with through gentrification we have mm -hmm. the clothing in, in fabric mm -hmm. and man in the white suit and you know this need for fuel but also you know the need for sex and love which comes mm -hmm. out in those romantic comedies so you know this this idea of the everyday i think is really important to us because people forget mm. that the things that we do every day impact of the, the natural world and not only because you know we're a part of the natural world but because you know the, of the externalities that come from that mm -hmm. so if you look at something like peter strickland's in fabric which mm -hmm. i'm not sure anybody's going to see except for us um <laughs> it's a hard film to watch i will say it's, that it's incredibly funny <laughs> but some of the things that robin were just talking about are all included mm -hmm. in the film a woman who wants uh, both uh, sexual gratification and love, mm -hmm. works at a bank, um, uh, tries to, uh, it's set in the late 80s, early 90s, tries to find love through um, the personal columns and buys a dress that leads to not only a disaster for her, but for anybody who's associated with this uh, ultimately uh, magical, horrific uh, dress. But at the same time, what are they discussing? What do you do at work? Do you take too many uh, minutes to go to the loo before mm -hmm. um, you come back to your uh, your, your your post? Um, mm -hmm. uh, what what does the person who fixes um, people's uh, laundry uh, mm -hmm. apparatuses do in his life? It goes on and on and on at the at the at this minutia of personal life 
and public life that gets connected by Strickland in very, very uh, unusual ways. Um, and so that's a really difficult film to write about because we're pretty sure most people have not seen it or will want to see it. But then we go to much larger subject matters like gentrification, where anybody who lives in an urban area understands immediately what's going on in the last uh, two years with the rise in rents. Um, people who have been living in places that suddenly they're not sure they can stay because their rents have just literally been doubled and mm -hmm. there's no more rent freeze because of, you know, the COVID legislation. People are suddenly finding themselves in situations that you see both in uh, blind spotting and in uh, Sorry to Bother You. I mean, mm -hmm. those films become monumentally um, uh, contemporary. They are uh, for that reason. Um, and so th those things and everything in between um, are, are all issues that end up coming to look at people's, you know, personal lives that are connected to their work days if they can find a job. So that interview at the beginning of mm -hmm. um, Sorry to Bother You um, is just incredibly sad and explosively funny at the same time. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, oh, I don't care what lies you're telling me. <laughs> that means you're going to be good for the job, mm -hmm. which totally surprises our hero who then enters a world that he has no control over. Mm -hmm. um, but comedy is a way to look at these serious issues because, you know, for one thing, we all know, and I mean, there's studies that prove this, that laughter is healing. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a way to heal. And, and the only way to be an active participant is to be healed. So for us, we, we find laughter an important tool to get those activist shoes on and actually get on the ground and do something. I mean, that's why, you know, we start talking about all that stuff in our conclusion from the, about the evolution of laughter and, and, mm -hmm. and how important it is for us to kind of highlight that because it, it does serve a purpose like how we define that comic mode. It's, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just a set of conventions. It's, it's a purpose. It, it, it highlights the things that we do to actually make some changes. And, and I got the, I actually started thinking about all that stuff uh, back when I was a psychology major. So <laughs> I have to forgive a lot of that. And I actually took a folklore of humor course that showcased, you know, how, you know, not only is it, is laughter evolutionary, but it's also embedded in, you know, our cultural context. So we have to really consider all of that when we're exploring the effects of comedy and laughter, because audience is most important when it comes to comedy. Whereas with, you know, drama, tragedy, all that stuff is supposed to be universal. And of course, I don't believe in that. <laughs> Whereas, of course, comedy is not. It's never meant to be. So Great. Well, it, it is about time for us to, to move to end on a roll. Um, unfortunately, I, I, it always it always feels like it comes up so yeah, quickly in the episode. It does, like, yeah. I just want to keep talking. Um, so uh, I've got a 12-sided die here. I'm just going to roll that. Uh, so we've got two guests. Um, we're going to do two questions, and then you can both answer both questions. So um, we'll get to know you a little bit more today. So uh, first question will be... Number 12, what do you like to do on a day off? 
which I know um, happens so frequently for us in academia. But <laughs> well, we're in a little different situation. But sure, on a on a day off right now in the wonderful world of COVID, um, jump on my bicycle and uh, just ride around. And uh, we're we're very close to a lot of woods and mm-hmm. um, areas that are immediately um, uh, rural, and so. I have an opportunity, as Robin does too, to jump on a bike, go over to her community garden, jump on a bike and go look at the food forest, jump on a bike and just drive through town and then go through a, you know, a series of woodlands and, and fields and just you know chill out. I do all that, but I also have to do everything that my dog wants me to do. <laughs> so my dog decides what I'm going to do on my day off. Nice. <laughs> awesome. Things we do for our furry, furry children. Well, those those dogs, the, the dog that Robin has now and her pr- two previous dogs have to put up with us because we uh, walk them in the evening before we start work and we discuss our work and the dogs are going, these people are nuts. Yeah, I know, I know my neighborhood has gotten used to us arguing about things as we walk. It's very funny. <laughs> well, the dogs do pay our price. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Question number two is number four. Oh, this one's actually fitting. So uh, mm-hmm. what are you watching or playing right now or recently? So it can either be, you know, it doesn't have to be academically related. This could just be something that uh, you've, you, uh, you know, movies that you've been watching, TV show, something that you would recommend to someone that you think is, uh, is pretty good. Well, I mean, we've been watching a lot of teen movies, but um, if you haven't already watched Reservation Dogs, I would highlight that. That's a it's it's a super series that it you know native focused and driven, mm-hmm. and set in Oklahoma. Um, I actually lived in Oklahoma for a few years near there, so Reservation Dogs. Oh no, nice. Reservation. Yes, Reservation Dogs. Yes. Dogs. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was almost going to say Reservation Blues. That's a novel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we we have been watching that for the very specific reason that we spent a lot of time looking at every uh, American Indian, North American Indian film that we could, and including um, you know Inuit films, etc. Mm-hmm. So we're really happy to see not only um, the show, but the producers and directors mm-hmm. uh, like Sterling Harjo, we've seen his previous work. And um, so we were really happy to see that he was still working and working in this uh, contemporary context. Um, and uh, the issues that they're bringing up are different for, for people who are watching it because reservation life is still, um, far more traumatic than most of us understand. And uh, mm-hmm. it's discussed in, in each individual episode. So and in a very should, comic way. You should also mm-hmm. watch their podcast 1492 if you haven't seen that. It's hilarious. Hmm. 1492 or 1491. <laughs> I can't even remember the title. <laughs> okay, 1492. Yeah, I'm thinking of the book 1491. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, definitely check those those things out. Mm-hmm. If um, anybody, I have you both watched Rutherford Falls? No, tell us about it. So Rutherford Falls is a Canadian, I believe, um, Native Indigenous produced about oh. the Native experience, um, but it's a comedic sitcom. 
Cool. Um, so I think you would both enjoy watching it because it really implements that comedy to discuss very serious issues about culture and native life and reservation life and the conflicts with white history and the preservation of white history but from a very comedic they make fun of academics which is funny (laughs) there's a very there's a very very funny uh white nationalist podcasting professor uh oh that sounds great where's it streaming oh it's on peacock Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. It's a, Thank it's you. a peacock show. Yeah. Okay, yes. The Rutherford so Falls. <laughs> Checking it out. All right. I think, that I think we answered for that us. dice roll. Yeah. <laughs> so before we end, finally, um, is there anywhere people can find you that you would like to share with us? Your social media, if you all have websites, or if you just solicit emails to your academic email, anywhere people can contact you if they want to know more about your work. We do have a... a a blog, sort of, and a website. <laughs> um, but really, just contact us through email. I mean, we're we're on the social media, but what whatever people want, I've, we will link your website. I'm not a very good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Neither one of us are very good at self promotion, and That's um, fine. this this particular podcast is one of our first, and uh, we've been pretty nervous about it. Uh, I would say that uh, I, I err on the side of shyness. <laughs> that's that's totally fine. We will we will share the links to your websites in the information just in case thank you thank Thank you you. sure can yeah awesome well thank you both again so much for for being here this has been i think we've successfully had some laughter so we can we can check off the comedy box for this episode so um yeah thank you and uh thank you all for listening uh this has been another episode of asley ecocast if you have uh an idea for an episode either you want to share your own work or there's someone that you would like for us to reach out to to have on the show uh you can get a hold of us through our email which is asley.ecocast at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at asley underscore ecocast and uh, our Twitter page also has a, a, a on the main profile the link to our link tree, which has um, all of that information plus uh, the submission form for uh, proposals. If you enjoy listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, or tweeting about today's show. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>